This is Democracy in Color, the voice of the new American majority. I'm your host, Amy Allison. Environmental protections are threatened under the current administration, no doubt. And unfortunately, that's nothing new to low-income communities around the country who are the most impacted by pollution. Today, I'm talking to Vien Trung, the national leader for environmental justice and equity. So stay tuned. Vien Trung is one of the country's foremost policy experts and strategists on building an equitable green economy. She leads Green for All, a national initiative that puts communities of color at the forefront of the climate movement and equality. And she's here in the Democracy in Color studios right now. Welcome, Vian. It is so good to be here. Ah, so happy to see you. And I know that you just got back from Flint, Michigan, didn't you? I was there earlier. No, I just got back from New York. Uh, where we were looking at understanding what were some of the greatest challenges in the country. Um, And then after that, we went to D.C. We helped to, we were on the steering committee for the climate march. It turned out 200,000 people in the streets in D.C. taking back our future. Yeah. So you're doing policy and you're also doing grassroots level organizing and activism. We say policy, politics, and people. Okay. So making sure that the policies reflect what people on the streets, people in our communities really want. The thing is, when you're low income or when you're underrepresented, oftentimes policies are done to us and not with us. And so what we do is making sure we're really putting people of color at the forefront of the climate movement and making sure that the policies and politics reflects the things that we need in our communities. Well, because I follow you on Facebook, maybe I mentioned Flint because I saw a picture of an African-American woman that was holding up something. I didn't know what it was, and you posed it like, this is actually a pipe. So I thought the Flint issue had been dealt with. And, you know, take us back. What's going on in Flint, Michigan? Um, What's the issue, and what are you trying to do there right now? Flint, Michigan has 100,000 people that were all poisoned by lead because the governor of Michigan decided that he was okay with switching the water from the Detroit water to the Flint River water. Flint River had cars that were dumped in the river. They had old clothes, they had wedding dresses, they had all kinds of toxins that were just flowing into the river. People who are from Oakland, where we are now, will know that Lake Merritt to be a very kind of like contaminated lake with all kinds of runoffs. Imagine drinking water from Lake Merritt. That's essentially what they were drinking from the Flint River. And there's a filtration process that could have taken away the bad, except that they didn't add the anti-corrosion chemicals needed to stop the lead pipes from leaching lead into the household. And so Flint is known to be a city where a lot of families went up there for the good auto auto manufacturing jobs. And generations just saved their dimes, their money to be able to buy a home. This caused all of that work to be just erased. So now their homes are worth nothing. They can't sell their homes because the the laws won't let them because there's lead contaminated water. And so they've not only been poisoned, we say that they have also been robbed. 
And that itself is scary. But that's happening for three years now. Is it three years that that story broke? I remember when there were hearings, the governor was there, the mayor was there um, getting grilled. What happened after those hearings? Well, it's been happening for three years, but the story really broke national news last year. That was when Rachel Maddow had this big national story on it. Everybody went out there. The Democratic Party had a debate out there. And it's been quiet since then, right? Mm. And it's because a lot of people wanted to not remind people that this was happening, including for some maybe good reasons. They thought that this was pushing away business. And so what that meant is that people in Flint and families are still waiting for help. And they've been told it may take another three years before funding will actually come down for the pipes to be replaced. You actually went there, right? We went there. We took a busload of people out there. Let me say why we did this first. Um, When I first heard this story, I called up some of our friends in Flint and said, what can we do? We're a little organization, but we know that this could have happened anywhere, including in my hometown in Oakland. What can we help with? And they said, we want to get our story out. No one's listening to us. We want to be heard. And so we pulled together a bus of folks that included our founder, Van Jones, Tom Steyer, Mark Ruffalo, Antonique Smith, who played Faith Wait, the actor Evans. Mark Ruffalo. Mark Ruffalo, the Hulk. The Hulk. He's the Hulk. He okay. The Hulk. I was like, wait, that name almost went by. Like, okay. All right, you went with the award-winning you, actor. You, you went to Flint, Michigan with the Hulk. Okay. With the Hulk. All right, continue with, your story. With Van Jones, um, <laughs> you know, CNN commentator. Yeah. Uh, with Tom Steyer, billionaire who's often seen as the answer to the Koch brothers, uh, and a number of other celebrities and artists. And we packed the bus with as many allies um, from the media, from allied organizations like NRDC, Carmen Perez, uh, um, one of the leaders of the Women's March, she was there. You know, we just had a, m- a bunch of people who, who brought their goodwill, their heart, and asked, what can we do? Uh, and I'm happy to say that that led to some funding that went to fa- families in Flint, that went to a lot of stories. We did two press conferences. It was great. And then we thought, okay, we did what we could. And now, you know, the government is going to take over. Now the mayor's got it. Now the... The Flint Rising folks, are, who are amazing organizers, we thought, okay, let us know when you need us. We'll, we'll come back again. And I'm sad to say that I kind of thought that things were getting better myself. And then two weeks ago, maybe a little more than that, but it felt like just yesterday, we were sitting down at the um, organizing for the Climate March in D.C. And the leader to Flint Rising, the organizer, came and sat down, and she just wasn't looking very good. And she said, you know, she had a seizure that morning Mm -hmm. and that she's been really sick for a while and that her son has been sick for a while and that, in fact, the whole Flint community has still been sick and that even as she's here trying to help with organizing this march, her heart's not in it because it feels like people had already forgotten about Flint. Mm -hmm. And so we, of course, couldn't let that happen. Um, And we had a call to action We called on our friends, and this time we had, in addition to the folks we had last time, 
amazing people like Russell Simmons, uh, hip hop legend, uh, Big Sean. We had uh, Little Miss Flint, who's like the most adorable person in the world. Uh, There's it, a little. Is she the one that said something to President Obama? It was on national, mm-hmm. the national news. Yes, she had a little dress on. Yes, I kind of remember this. And she finally recoiled when President Trump tried to. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he tries uh, anymore with the kids. But uh, so you got a lot of big names to do. Yeah. What are, What are they doing now around uh, Flint? Uh, they said help. Help make sure that we're donating money to help Flint families. Um, let's not make them wait three more years, and let's do more. We've had hospital uh, and medical supply companies donating medical supplies to help. You know, it just has been a lot of, it's been painful to see how many families have been hurt, but it's also been deeply rewarding to see how many people will rise to the challenge and ask for nothing and just give their hearts. Mm. When are those pipes going to get fixed? I mean, that's just like, because I cannot imagine that Flint's the only city in this country that's got this uh, potential problem. No, there are there are hundreds of other cities that have this happening, five at least, that has higher lead poisoning just in the state of Michigan. My own zip code has higher lead poisoning than Flint. Ours is because of the paint, not because of the pipes. But this is a huge problem across the country. Here's the thing. It can actually get worse if we don't begin paying attention. The Trump administration's current proposed budget proposes to cut a third of EPA's budget. It is the biggest proposed cut to any agency in the, at the federal level. And what that means is that we're going to have all of our environmental protections, our water protections, our air protections gutted. A lot of it's already been gutted. It's going to get even worse. And we don't understand that we're going to be the families who are going to be most deeply impacted. How do you think about the way to, I don't know, confront, overcome um, proposals like this? I mean, it's coming from the Trump administration. He's embroiled in the whole Russia scandal. By the time people hear this podcast, maybe he'll impeachment. We don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. But what do we do about that? I mean, that's it seems like stuff that happens in Washington isn't within our grasp uh, often. Yeah, I struggle with that a lot, too. And there's there's a part of me that is the fighter, that is the Oakland girl who's going to say, we got to rise up, we got to resist, and we got to fight back. And that's there. Beyond that, we also have to recognize that there are a lot of people who are literally dying whether it's in Oakland, whether it's in Flint, whether it's in coal country, there are people who are literally dying. And our fight back has to be done in ways that is not so distracted, that we don't realize lives that are literally at stake. And so how do we focus on solutions? Because I have to say that as a girl from Oakland, um, I'm a fighter. I'm the youngest of 11 kids, believe me. (laughs) I know how to fight. But I can't wake up in the morning every day being compelled to just fight. I have to be compelled by a sense of hope. What are we fighting for? Who are we fighting for? What are we about? And that, for me, is about solutions. It's about coming from a place of solidarity and love. Um, And for me, it's about showing up for Flint. It's about showing up to actually invest in companies and communities that is about bringing us jobs, is about bringing us uh, self-sufficiency in our communities. 
that's that's where I want to focus my energy. Mm. Uh, you and I met each other years ago when you were working on um, really in the same field doing environmental justice policy. Most people don't know that you were behind really a seminal piece of legislation in the state of California. Um, tell me about that, because that was a huge win. Yeah, I'm proud of that. And um, and I was part of a, a great group of people who worked together on it. So the, I think the one you're talking about is... Wait, there's more than one? Yes. The yeah. one I'm talking about is just one of many. <laughs> okay, gotcha, gotcha. I probably have helped to pass and implement over 20 policies um, in the last 10 years. Um, and the one I think you're talking about is this thing called SB 535. California has this great program. We make big polluters clean up or pay up. And that's a good thing because you and I, we pay for the garbage we put on our streets. Put big polluters and big companies, they don't have to do that for the poison they put in our air. And so we think that's crazy. Um, and California happily has a program that actually is unique in the country. We do that. We make them pay up, uh, clean up or pay up. Now, this group of friends and I, we came together and we said, let's make sure that pot of money that they're paying up for is going back to the very communities who have paid for it with their health and their lives. And now we've started with 25%, but now 35% of that whole pot goes back to the very communities like Bayview Hunters Point. In like San Francisco. In San Francisco, um, like Richmond, California, which still does not have a traditional grocery store, like East and West Oakland, um, like East Palo Alto, L.A., Fresno, a lot of the communities that are either rural, urban, or suburban, which demonstrates the highest levels of um, water contamination, uh, suit and pollution, air pollution, of dropout rates, infant mortality, high levels of rent burden, so indicators of poverty and pollution, and they're the ones who are getting the set aside pot of money. The part that I, w I do want to geek out a little bit about um, is that the money, when we first got the law passed, which was amazing and it surprised everybody, we went back to the very community and said, where do you want the money to go? because you're the ones who've already paid for it, uh, and we want to make sure that money goes to the programs that have most served you, uh, that speaks in your language, that hires people from the community, that has done the best outreach, that is really the programs you need, um, and that has been serving you well. And everything that the community said that they wanted and needed has was fully funded at the max level that it could be after a year of conversation. So it went to things like free bus passes for seniors and students. It went to affordable housing by transit hubs. It went to um, free solar and free, free energy efficiency. It went to van full pilot projects for migrant farm workers. It was just an incredible list of things that serve people who otherwise never had voice in the political process. This is about taking that's a creative that's a pretty creative solution to making communities better people's lives better you want to know the best the part that i'm like so excited about what? it's okay bear with me it's called transformative climate communities okay. and um after the law got passed i sat back and thought this is not going to be enough money given the scale of the problem it's not enough money and so uh heather hood uh, from enterprise community partners we came together and we thought, what about taking this 
a small fund from the public program and combining it with the private bank's financial institution's money and then multiplying the little public money we have to private capital. And that created a whole new fund that is just less than a billion dollars. So now we're looking at the 535, which was a little less than a billion in this transformative climate communities, which is a little less than a billion. And that's that's that latter fund is going to 70 million, that is to Fresno, 35 to San Bernardino, 35 million to San Bernardino, 70 million to Fresno, 35 million to LA, and that goes to funding the climate action plans. These are like plans that the community organizers in their cities have been organizing for years to create like what a vision of the future can look like if they could do anything. Yeah, when you're yeah. laying this out, it's like, couldn't we do... Th- I mean, this is California. This is the first state that... This is this is all groundbreaking stuff. Yeah, imagine if you can take this into a place like Flint. Yeah. Wouldn't that be amazing? And we, what if we just took this beyond California? It is entirely possible. So, let's see. Who who in who in Michigan would have to uh, be behind this? Who would have to have the majority of the state legislature? I was I you know lay it out for me just like really quickly. What what would have to happen in Michigan? Michigan is a higher hurdle. So we are looking at replicating the repeating the California model in Oregon, Washington, and New York right now. And in the next 18 months, they may actually pass legislation that looks like that, which is really exciting. Um, and then beyond that, the taking the public funds and matching it with the private funds, that we're looking at doing it without even public policy. Because wow. How do you do that? Well, you can take it's a not look. magic. It's, it's like I'm talking to a lawyer who has all this years of experience doing policy. I mean, how do you do that? We're looking. We've been talking to a lot of foundations and saying, what if we took some of your program-related investments, not your grants, but sometimes foundations they provide loans. What if we took a little bit of your loans and we combined it with private investments and capital, and that way you can actually do the whole transformation without policy at all. Interesting. It's possible. It's, we could do it. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's beautiful. I remember when I had uh, San Francisco supervisor Jane Kim in the same studio, and she said, we can make college free. And it was like, what? And she said, here's how it will work. And now, in 2017, college is free. Uh, community college is free in San Francisco to residents. And uh, whenever I hear something like this, and I'm like, this is possible. It's been a lack of imagination mm-hmm. that's really been our limit. So that is amazing. Is that why, uh, by the way, you are giving the opening keynote in Brussels uh, in a few weeks for the European Union, which is a huge, a huge thing. It's, it's a huge honor. And uh, yeah, I'll be talking a little bit about what we've seen possible in California, in this country, what we've been doing and where we think we're going to need to go. Beyond that, though, they're also really interested in hearing what's going on with this Trump thing. Yeah, the thing. What's happening with immigration? What's happening with social justice work? Because they're feeling the same thing post-Brexit. Luckily, we don't have France. That is, That would have been just devastating. Too much. But what are you going to tell uh, the European Union about the Trump thing? I was at thing number one and thing number two. There's a bunch of things. Uh, uh, you know, and how can uh, you help the, you know, Europe make sense when we don't even seem to, a lot of us don't even understand what is going on. Well, what, what's thing one and thing two for you first? <laughs> well, Pence is thing two. Okay. But we have thing one and we have a lot of things. <laughs> but, um, yeah, what are you going to say? Mm. 
Well, I think that they understood the growth now of populism, even in Europe. And it's not only Europe, it's not just the United States, it's really across the globe. And what it is, is a growing resentment and um, frustration about how big is the divide between the have and the have-nots. Remember, we had the 99% movement, where a lot of people were saying, this growing inequality is just not right. What Trump and others are doing really well is to redirect the, the frustration, the righteous indignation that was against the 1%. They redirected it to people of color and to immigrants and said, we're not your problem, we're your saviors. Those people who do not look like you, they are the problem, right? And so what we have to remind folks is we have to turn to each other and not against each other. And that work around building this this understanding where our common ground is, I think still needs to happen. In fact, more urgently so. Mm. Well, I'm going to be looking forward to uh, seeing that speech. It's going to be broadcast, right? I think That's so. That's a pretty big deal. Opening keynote. I'm going to imagine you on the other side of that camera. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll be <laughs> just like cheering and kind of like inappropriately cheering um, um, because these kind of issues and crim- it's like kind of like taking the justice and putting environmental brings people of color in the middle of, of these issues. What is your strategy to deal with the Trump administration's it's, I'm sure the cuts are one thing and they're doing a bunch of other stuff. Um, how do we go forward right now? A few ways. First, if we're just going to look at the environmental side, too often when we talk about the environmental work that needs to be done, you look around the table and there's very few people of color, there's very few young people, especially at tables that are making real decisions. And that's a problem. And then even when you look at the grassroots, where the real power is and where the real decision needs to be happening, we don't have the diversity and the groundswell that we need. The fact that we're seeing a proposed one-third budget cut to the EPA and that we don't have civil rights leaders and racial justice groups rising up, calling this out as a huge problem, it's telling. Um, and we that, have you. I just want to say, as a civil rights leader, as an environmental leader, we have you. You're you're calling attention to it. And I'm scrappy and all five foot two of me will fight <laughs> like mad. But um, we all need to know that it literally is our lives on the line. It's our ca- it's our families, it's our neighbors, it's all of us. So we need to we need to see this as our work and our movement. And believe me, I know sometimes people think, well, the environmental movement seems like they're really well healed. Don't they all have it covered? No. There are so many fights happening right now that people have to choose whether you're fighting for forestry or the Arctic or the Amazons or the Paris Climate Treaties. We need people to get up and stand up and say we're fighting for our communities Mm. and that they are not going to build pipelines on um, the bridge called our backs. We're not going to let them build highways and freeways that they call infrastructure to bulldoze our communities, that we're not going to let them declare... um, our land as theirs for what they quote unquote call as like the need for security which is what we're already hearing them threaten to do Mm -hmm. you know and we need to be able to say this is our work and our communities and we refuse to lay down so I think we need to get aligned on what is at risk here and really be able to demand our um, demand our role and our power and recognize how important it is I also think it's important in order for us to understand what um, what 
Trump needs to understand right now is his base. It's also going to have to rise up against him. Because <laughs> wait, okay, all right. So far, he's still pretty popular with the I people know, who voted. But you know what? They don't yet know that what he's going to decide to do is going to hurt his people. But is it going to happen fast enough for them to rise up against him? I just don't have a lot of faith. We haven't pointed that out yet enough. I think. I think we have to continue to point out that this, um, that a lot of these things are not going to deliver to his base what he has promised. And in fact, they're going to be in need of help in ways that he won't show up to for, and mm-hmm. that needs to that needs to be told. Because mm-hmm. whatever's bad for his base is probably going to be bad for everybody. It's uh, the economy, it's um, safety, it's uh, it's opioid, it's criminal justice, it's uh, even coal country. You know, we had to be the ones who were demanding healthcare pensions. Healthcare and pensions for coal miners, and we are winning, and we're helping on that. But he didn't do that. We had to demand that, mm-hmm. you know. So I'll see you on Fox, basically taking credit for that. It's <laughs> <laughs> just, just ridiculous um, because the uh, there isn't a lot of um, obvious connection between the people who are advocating for environmental reforms and the connection between what you might be doing for coal miners, and you just don't, you wouldn't see that on Fox. You wouldn't. And we have to do better at telling our story, which is why, you know, I think that what they have done well is to devastate the the free speech by calling out, you know, by making this idea of a fake news thing. I think your work is so important, like getting the information out with this podcast and also in the multimedia forms that you are representing in. We all, we all need to do that, whether it's going to the online media platforms like Attention and AJ Plus or going to your social media, we need to continue to get the word out about how we feel and the messages and the stories that they need to understand. I did, just about a few minutes ago, you made a reference to, oh, you said, Bridge Called My Back, the Bridge. That's a famous book. Did you mm-hmm. read? Hey, you read that book. That's a famous feminist of color sort of manifesto. Women of color fem- manifesto for sure. Yeah. 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 Did you study that in college? I definitely read a lot of the snippets to it. Um, and I think that right now what we're seeing is a regrowth. Maybe even the third version of that book needs to be released by somebody. Maybe us. Maybe yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> um, about, and, and you made the reference of Bridge Call My Back. Why? Because there is a need now for the, and I think it's happening, a growth of women of color in this new feminist movement. And what we're seeing today requires more empathy more solidarity and more of a sense of collaboration than ever. And I think that women, especially women of color, are especially suited to lead that work because oftentimes we have been the ones who've really relied on each other. And I look across at you and you've helped me out so much. Um, I called Heather's name into the conversation because she helped with this idea. There are so many people who have loved me up in order for me to stand where I stand. And when I think about that, it's a lot of the sisters, a lot of my own biological sisters, a lot of my sisters who've been raising me in the struggle. There's been so many people who've held each other, kind of linked arms and like held each other up. And, And I think about how much love there was and how little there is now in this country. 
as a person who grew up in Oakland um, and went to law school, I was drilled in my it was drilled in my head oftentimes that the value um, that I needed to convey was how proper I spoke, how I mastered the master's language, how I could refer and cite the canons um, or precedents in law school. What I now know is that we have to get deeper in touch with our real power, which is who we really are, the ancestors hopes and dreams that are in us, the sisters who have linked arms with us, when we walk into a room harnessing that real internal spirit and power that we hold. And I think that is where the country is lacking right now. We have written so many policies, and I've, I've been in those rooms, people who write policies, and they are all leading with their heads and not with their hearts. Mm. And so now I think it's a time where we have to call up our hearts, call up our spirits, call up our empathy and call up our solidarity. And I don't, I don't know anybody else but women of color who are best positioned to lead that work. Mm. Do you often find yourself approached by Asian American women asking for help and guidance to develop their own leadership? I am. Um, and... I have to say it was a little surprising at first. Why? I mean, you're doing you're doing awesome national and international um, work. Why is it surprising? There's this thing called the model minority myth. And a lot of young women, Asian women, I think are conditioned to portray everything is okay. That we're great. That we were conditioned by our parents or maybe by you know, whatever expectations were laid upon us that we've got it all handled. And so when young women, especially Asian women, approach me, I know that it's uncommon for them to ask for help. And so when I now tell the story about being a refugee and growing up and how hard it was, I've had 50-year-old, 60-year-old women who come up to me and confess that they've never heard their own story reflected back to them in, on stage or in any other narrative. And they would, you know, and they cry, and of course I cry, and then we're all crying in line together, whatever. Um, there's been cries in the bathrooms. There's been cries on stage. There's what, been a what, lot of crying. What do you think it is about yeah. your story? Um, you came, your family uh, came yeah. in the in the was it the 80s? We uh, yes, we were part of the boat people um, who left Vietnam after we left after the war was ended uh, in '79. Uh, and then uh, we came to the United States, and I was uh, the youngest of 11 kids. We came here, and we began our lives as migrant farm workers in Portland, Oregon, mm-hmm. where my mom strapped me to her back, and we were picking strawberries and snow peas for a few years. And then we came to Oakland, where my family uh, worked in what was called garment factories, what is really commonly known as sweatshops. And we did that for 15 years. And there's a lot of us, right? But when you think about the mainstream media, you don't really hear those stories about Asians who are poor or Asians who were struggling, Asians who were in sweatshops in Oakland or, or were in gangs or were dropping out of school. And it's not commonly told. And so I think that when there is a breaking where people don't have to act like everything's perfect, um, it's refreshing and it's liberating. It must be hard, though, balancing the world of politics with the authentic 
experience that you've been talking about, which is where you came from and who you're trying to be and the spirit you're trying to evoke in the work. Because politics can be just rugged and male-dominated. and It's funny. Well, while it is rugged and male-dominated, the one person who helped me a lot through this is my mentor, who's Van Jones. Um, and we have conversations about being free. And what does it mean to be free? And I began asking my friends, do you feel free? What does freedom look like to you? And I'd be curious to hear, um, you know, your answers after this. But, uh, you know, oftentimes the people I talk to, they struggle with that. And if there's a common answer, maybe a general theme, I think freedom often sounds like being exactly who you are without having to sugarcoat it, without having to hide behind it. And the work that I've been doing right now is to be more and more free in whatever space I'm in. And so in the world of politics, I mean, you can code switch, but I don't have to lie about my ideas anymore. And I have to, I, and I feel free enough to say, here's what's going on in Oakland. Here's what's going on in Flint. Here's what's going on in these communities that I've been in. And we can do better and we must do better. And there's a grandma in Oakland there's a sister in Flint. There's a uh, a young kid in New Orleans who needs me to speak up for them. Because otherwise, what's the point of being at the table if you're not going to speak, right? What's the point of all of the work that has gone into me being able to be articulate, quote unquote, and to be heard at I mean, the they table? They use it against you too? I, you're, <laughs> you're so articulate. I thought that was only reserved for black people who are educated. Oh, it's like, for anybody. She's who so is, articulate. <laughs> it's for anybody who, um, yeah, I think that they, that is not like, quote unquote, American, like truly American or something. Um, yeah, I get that a lot. Uh, what's your, you know, I was going to ask, uh, you know, often, uh, and, you know, often what happens is you're giving to other people. It's hard to sustain yourself. So how do you sustain yourself for this work? Well, I have two really cute four-year-old twins, <laughs> and um, they help me get over my stuff real quick. Um, and... I don't come, you know, I really don't come to this work from a place of fight. I really do come to this place from a place of love. And I think that's what gives me energy. Because if I was just in it to keep like fighting and protesting and resisting, I wouldn't really have like enough energy to draw, draw me through. I would get drained really easily. Um, you know, just, just even a bicker on the street for no reason for anything, it just drains me. But because I come to this, like, I, I walk by I walked by an 11-year-old kid today and he stopped me and said, "Can I can I have a few dollars for lunch I haven't eaten?" And and of course I did, but I knew that what he needed was more than $2. Um and I knew what that what Oakland needs. You know, I walked by people who live in or who were in sleeping bags in downtown Oakland, and you know they haven't showered in a long time. I talk to friends and families who are still struggling, trying to make ends meet. I have a brother who is in prison. Um, I had a nephew who was murdered outside of a, a pool hall in San Francisco. And I know that I love them so much, people I know and people I don't know. 
that I have to do better. And that um, that idea that I know, I have some knowledge in my head now, some, some ideas of solutions and some creativity around how to do it, um, that, that kind of love draws me through. Mm. What music do you listen to? Or what are you listening to now? I was listening to Alicia Keys on, the, on Spotify. Just oh! Now. <laughs> what do you listen to? I listen to Selection every day, all day. Solange? Uh, it's called Selection. What's it's, Selection? Uh, Selection is it's on SoundCloud, um, and it's a collection of DJs who take have this very creative approach to mixing old kind of music, which old meaning <laughs> basically from my childhood, <laughs> old, um, with new music. And so it's everything ranging from jazz to salsa to hip hop, and they redo classics. And I love it. They have a radio show and they have a whole whole thing. I have to look that up. Oh, my God. It's great writing music as I'm working on my book. I just listen to that. I'm still listening to Tupac. I mean. What? <laughs> you listen to Tupac? Still. I, there's like new mixes every now and then, but I'm, I, I, need to, I need to brush up on my music. What is it about Tupac? Well, what is it about Tupac that really gets you? I think that his music was about remembering the remembering what this is all about right when you can like it was one of the first hip-hop songs i ever heard about like singing love to your mom um when i there's been a lot of people in my life who's passed um so i would listen to his songs about grief which is uncommon um and it's not like fake music it's like real music about like dealing and struggling with grief um and then the music about like it's it's like the revolution, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's like that revolutionary spirit. So it's combining all of the above. I know that there's a lot of critics who talks about like you know his um, his lyrics and his words. Um, you know that's like against feminism, but I listen to the good stuff and I just disregard the rest. Yeah, yeah. Well, I uh, was talking about music cred. I have no music cred. Other than Selection, which my son introduced me to like two years Your ago. Your son's got but, the best music taste. <laughs> right. And he I, should. <laughs> right. No, he just, it, what, you know, he's like, just listen to this and just, they'll keep putting fresh stuff because otherwise, um, but otherwise is, you become me. It, yeah, I was wondering <laughs> what our soundtrack is. 2017. What is the fight for justice mm. that you fight every day? What's that soundtrack? I don't know, but you know what? I would, I would, it would be a lot of love stuff. Um, People think of love as romantic. That's not what you're talking about. It's like the fierce love, right? It's like the, I love you so much that I refuse to let you talk negatively about yourself. Oh, you know, I love you so much that I refuse to let you make like bad decisions. You know, like that kind of love when you're like, like the the mama bear kind of love. It has to be something around that. Mm. Who's who's the epitome of that? I don't know, but I think you are. <laughs> Beyonce's got to be all up in the soundtrack, though. <laughs> well, I'm voting for Vian Trung, and uh, I so appreciate the work that you're doing on behalf of all of us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, for joining us here on Democracy in Color. Thanks for having me. This podcast is sponsored by Democracy in Color. And this episode was recorded at Skyline Studios in Oakland, California, produced by Lulu Matute and edited by Brian Matheson. Special thanks to Miss Ebony Childs and our team at Democracy in Color, Charlene Chang, Olivia Parker, C. Phillips, Luli Osher, and Julie Martinez. 
You can listen to future episodes on democracyandcolor.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and iTunes. You can also connect with us on Facebook and on Twitter. And if you appreciate this podcast as much as we appreciate you, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Tell a friend, a colleague, or a neighbor to tune in for their dose of political intelligence. So until next time, thanks for joining us.